Amen. Well, let's continue on in our worship. We have the privilege to do that now by looking to God's Word together to see what we might hear from God because He speaks through His Bible today. The Bible is His Word, His truth, and it makes a difference in our lives. And I'd invite you, if you have a Bible, to open up to Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and gentlemen will get you one that you can borrow. Uh, as you're flipping to Ephesians chapter 5, just a couple of brief announcements. All the youth in the Sunday school class, just uh, if you could stay after again, like you did last week, and help the tear down here today. Uh, number one, that was a great blessing to those that were in charge, and they were able to get to lunch quicker, so we really appreciated that. Thank you for doing that. just made it a lot quicker. And we really need your help today because Mr. Snyder is not here, Scott Snyder, and... Mr. Beckman, and those are the two that are usually in charge, so we need help. So I'm going to ask the youth to be servants again as they were last week. And then a message for elementary fifth grade on down. Uh, we're not having children's church today because we thought it would be best to have you in here for the next few weeks as we study Ephesians together, yes, as a fifth grader, as a third grader, first grader. We believe that you can study Ephesians with us, especially on this section where Paul is talking about the family. Mommies, daddies, husbands, wives, kids. There's stuff for you too. So we want to learn together as a family. And some of you younger ones in particular have been taking great notes. And the offer still stands. If you're taking notes as a little kid, 18-year-old on down, you can go ahead and turn it into me. And I'll, I'll review your notes as I've been doing for several of you have been taking good notes and taking in God's Word. So let's go ahead and look at Ephesians chapter 5. Last week, if you were not here, we looked at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 24 which is a command to, to wives and their greatest obligation from God's perspective. Um, if, you didn't, if you were not here last week, um, and you're going to be here on a regular basis all the way through this passage up into Ephesians 6, I would encourage you to listen to it online. You can access it there. We've got some people that do a wonderful job of getting the sermon online right away because last week's message goes with today's message, which goes with the next several weeks. It's all a unit. It needs to be heard together Big picture is the whole context. Uh, that's just an important reminder. Uh, as a matter of fact, I said Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22, all the way up through chapter 6, verse 9, is really a unit that goes together, so you need to understand it that way. You can't just pull up one verse out and try to understand it in isolation because it's not going to make sense. This was an entire ongoing letter that was had continuity and particularly 22 through chapter 6, verse 9, need to be understood together. This is talking about God's expectations for interpersonal relationships and specifically family relationships. And every one of us is in a family relationship uh, to one extent or another. Uh, last week we looked at the most basic injunction or responsibility that wives have towards their husbands. This week we transition and look at what husbands are responsible for. Don't tune out if you're not a husband. And don't get overly excited if you're a wife. Jabbing your husband all throughout the sermon today. But let, let's look at Ephesians 5. I want to read 22 through 33. It's, where it's talking to husbands and wives. It goes together. Okay? I want to look at that. But I want to read those passages together before we start. So let's look at Ephesians 5.22 where Paul says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, 
just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, in order that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. So today on your handout there, I put on there, Husband, love your wife. I'm trying to personalize it. If you're married, you're a husband, you're here today, this is God's word to you. It's God's word to me because I fall under that category. And Paul is talking to Christian husbands primarily at the church in Ephesus. So if you're a Christian, you're a husband, this message is for you. Let's go ahead and look at it. But just to kind of tie some loose ends together, especially if you were not here last week, let me just review some basic principles that we were reminded of or learned last week. By the way, that sermon I preached last week on wives submit to your husbands, I got some good feedback. I got a lot of comments and a lot of questions that were good of all ages, not just upset wives and not just happy fathers or husbands, but from teenagers as well. As they're thinking about the future, so it was excellent. Some very good discussion. We even had good discussion, edifying discussion at home uh, as husband and wife and also with our children as they're looking to the future as well. That's what God's Word is supposed to do to us. It's supposed to affect our thinking. Know the truth and the truth will set you free in every area of life. It's true in marriage. It's true in family life as we look to God's truth. But here's some things by way of reminder from last week. As we look at Ephesians 5.25, keep in mind that Ephesians 5.22 and 5.25 go together. Husbands and wives together. This message is one unit. They can't be isolated. Also, we were reminded that the wife's most basic obligation was submitting herself or subjecting herself to her husband. It's that simple. Uh, and we defined that, that submitting to your husband meant voluntary yielding to his leadership. So it's voluntary so you should know who you're going to marry. You should want to submit to that guy. That's the point. If you don't want to submit to that guy, don't marry that guy. It's a voluntary yielding to his leadership. It is not abdicating responsibility in life as a wife. That isn't what I said. It's a voluntary yielding to the general leadership of your husband in your marriage relationship and also in your home. And one of the best ways to uh, define that commitment to submit is the wife is to respect her husband. She is to respect his leadership because God put him in that position. Uh, also, this passage is corrective for everybody that it addresses, addresses in light of the fall. Uh, the fall messed everything up. Adam and Eve, the curse. God cursed the family because of sin. And so families and people are dysfunctional. And so this is God's solution right here. So these commands are corrective, trying to fix our messed up natural behaviors that we have in our homes with God's solution because the fall messed everything up. Another thing we said is submit is not synonymous with obey. That surprised some people as I got the feedback. Very important. The word obey is used by Paul in Ephesians 6.1 and also uh, in Ephesians 6.5. It's not the word he uses here. So they're not synonymous. It's not saying wives obey your husbands. 
We talked a little bit about that difference. Uh, the wife is not a child, and the wife is not an employee, and the wife is not a slave of her husband to do the bidding of everything that the husband demands that she do. The wife actually is a peer to the husband, ideally the best friend of the husband, a partner to the husband, the complement to the husband. Um, so very important to keep in mind. Also, these injunctions or commands that Paul is giving can only be fulfilled to the ideal with the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Because we cannot do these things on our own on a regular basis. So if you're not a Christian, you don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and it would be futile to think that you could do what God is asking you to do without the indwelling Holy Spirit. can't be done. So you need to become a Christian in order for this to be a reality in your life. Another thing I said is every one of these major commands, he, Paul deals with every member in the family, and he does it uh, in a distilled fashion in just a few sentences and a few words and a couple of paragraphs, and he covers everybody's main obligation. And then we highlighted the fact that God, uh, in his wisdom, distills everything down, making it simple for us, not complicated. That is an infinite, almighty, wise, gracious God. If we want to live right, He simplifies it. It's not overly complicated. As human beings, we tend to overcomplicate things and mess it all up. So there's just a few commands. It's just very basic. Wife, what are you supposed to do? Uh, submit. Husband, what are you supposed to do? Love. So very simple commands. Kind of like the Ten Commandments. God summarized all of morality in ten sentences. The beauty and the wisdom of God. Simplify, simplify, simplify. Stay focused. God's focus here. Um, what are the parameters of a wife submitting? I had some questions about that. Well, Paul gave a couple of parameters. One important one is uh, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. So the parameters of submitting yourself to your husband is unto, as unto the Lord, which means submit to your husband in every way that pleases the Lord or honors the Lord. And if your husband requires you, tries to force you, tries to make you do something that dishonors God... You have a higher calling, obedience to God and not to your husband. Rarely does that happen, but it does happen. Or if your husband, many times this is in a relationship where the wife is a Christian and the husband is not a believer. And if your unbelieving husband is trying to force you to do something God doesn't want you to do, then you obey God, not man. That's what the apostles said in the book of Acts. And also if your husband is keeping you from doing something that God wants you to do, you obey God, not your husband. But again, that is very rare. So keep that in mind. That's a balance, the parameters of obedience. Uh, I mean, not obedience, sorry, but of submission. Um, here's an important one I didn't get to talk about uh, at all, but it's important to keep in mind as we think of the, the role that the wife is to submit to her husband. Even though the man is the head of the home, the husband is the head of the wife, the husband is the leader of the home, and the wife is to submit to the husband what is still true is that as Christians, husband and wife are still peers before God. And all the obligations and commands and imperatives in Scripture equally apply to both husband and wife. That is to say that all the one another's in the New Testament, honor one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, rebuke one another, confess your sins to one another, submit to one another. Every one of those one another's applies to husband and wife equally, even in their home and even in their marriage relationship. That is to say that a Christian wife is obligated and has the right before God to confront her husband if he is in sin. Because that's what the Bible says. Every Christian has the obligation and the right to do that very thing with any other Christian if there is sin involved. 
Okay, uh, and then the last one is, keeping in mind as we're talking about these things, husbands and wives and these differences and distinctions, we're talking about roles, differences in roles, okay? Not in inherent worth and inherent value. And as I'm talking through this and I make a statement saying that the husband is the head of the home, I am not saying that women are inferior to man. Never said that. The Bible doesn't say that. And we talked about that last week. Men and women were both made in the image of God and are one before the Lord spiritually, morally, in terms of inherent worth, value, dignity. We're not talking about that. These are distinctions in roles in the home as to how they are to function with one another before God so that things function smoothly and in harmony. Okay, so that's now wrapping up from last week. Let's go ahead and look at this week and that passage, uh, starting with husbands and what their obligation is. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives just as also Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. One thing as you're looking at the text there, one thing you will quickly notice, if I were to ask you, what is the difference between the commands for wives and the commands for husbands? You might say, well, the passage that is directed towards husbands is way longer. And as a matter of fact, there's like five commands for husbands. And wives, they only get one command. That's not fair. You might be thinking if you're a husband. Actually, there's one main command, and that's Ephesians 5.25, for the husband. So it's still simple. And the other imperatives that follow are really ways to fulfill the greatest command, which is loving your wife. And we're going to look at those other commands that have to do with the main command for husbands in Ephesians 5.25. But there is more information given to husbands. Verse Chapter 5. Verse 25 all the way to verse 33, as opposed to just 22 to 24 for the wives. So there's more info here for the husbands. But isn't that appropriate since he's supposed to be the leader of the home? He's supposed to have more on his shoulders to a degree or for a certain reason? I think so. And it's going to make sense as we go through it. And actually, uh, Paul puts some uh, foundational theology for the marriage relationship in verses 25 to 23 to wrap it all together. So that's another reason why it's longer. Uh, but the main command I want to look at today for husbands is their obligation, their greatest obligation is to love their wife. And anytime I do counseling for married couples, as I have over the years, and the couple sits down, uh, I always do diagnostic questions. And I do the same diagnostic questions all the time. They're in there to see me because they have a problem. They are in there hopefully, hopefully finding to try to find a solution. And before we get into the dirty details, I always ask them the same thing. Uh, are you a Christian? Do you know Jesus Christ? And if they say yes to those questions, then it's real simple. Okay, as a wife, what is your greatest responsibility towards your husband? Hopefully, she says, to submit and respect him as the head of the home. And then I ask the husband the same thing. What is your greatest responsibility before God towards your wife? And hopefully, he says, it is to love my wife. And then from there, we start counseling and talk about it. What does that mean? How does it flesh it out? And how are you not doing that currently in your marriage relationship? Or if you once were doing this, how'd you get off track and what messed it all up? And that's how I proceed. And I just use God's word as the guide because that's the solution, keeping it simple. So let's go ahead and look at that for husbands. Husbands, God has called us, everyone who is a Christian husband, your greatest responsibility and obligation in your life towards your wife is to love her. And by the way, if you're a Christian husband... In terms of priorities in life, your greatest priority is your relationship with God himself and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And cultivating that. And the next priority relationship you have, if you are a husband, is towards your wife. Even if you have children, Christian husband, your greatest responsibility in terms of priorities is first towards your wife, then your children. 
Because you parent out of the overflow of what kind of a husband you are. Very important. It's foundational. Kids come and go, literally. Spouses are to remain or be the foundation of the rest of your family living. So let's go ahead and look at it. Husbands, love your wife. And like I said, verses 26, for the most part through 33, there are other commands or subcommands for husbands to follow. And I just wanted to stop on the main one, verse 25, and really talk about what that means. What does it mean, husband, to love your wife as Jesus loved the church? That, that is intimidating. That is mind-boggling. That is such an ideal that literally, I mean, it can't be fulfilled by any one of us because we are so lowly and pathetic and weak and finite as sinful men. We can't possibly, in an idealistic sense, as husbands, love our wives the way Christ loved the church because Christ is perfect. Christ is God in the flesh. But nevertheless, he still gave us a practical model to follow. So we're going to look at these practical models that Jesus lived out for us so that husbands have a model, practically speaking, that they can follow and actually implement in their life in ways that they can love their wife. So that's what I want to do right now. So let's go ahead and look at that. I came up with eight ways that Christ loved the church that husbands should be mimicking in their own marriage relationships. So let's go ahead and look at that. And again, if you're high school, elementary, college, and you're not married yet, this is good planning for marriage, good prep. Maybe you're going to be married someday. It's something to be thinking about. If you're a young man... This is what God is going to require of you someday. And if you're a young woman, this is the kind of man you should be looking for. One who pleases God. So let's go ahead and look at these eight characteristics that I came up with from Jesus' life of how Jesus loved the church. And as a result, this is the way husbands should love their wives. Husbands, how should we love our wives? Point number one. Christ's love for His church was an action. And that's John 3.16. Very simple. Christ's love was an action. Love, many times, actually probably most of the time, in the New Testament is a verb. Love is an action. Boy, is that a contrast to what we hear in the world, isn't it? Think about it. God so loved the world. By the way, the world is referring to sinful humanity. God so loved sinful humanity. People who didn't deserve God's love. God so loved the world that He did what? God did something in response to the love that He had for sinful people. God so loved the world that He felt really good about it. No. God so loved the world that He gave. So it's an action. So love is an action. And it manifests itself in actions. So Christ's love for His church was an action. And as a result, He acted out His love. It was tangible. You could see it. It was done through deeds, not just thoughts, not just words. So true love, the love of Christ, is action-oriented. God so loved the world that He gave. And He gave the greatest thing of all. He gave of Christ Himself. He gave the second person of the Trinity willingly. Jesus Christ came down and gave Himself for the church. So if you really love your wife, you're going to show that you love your wife through actions that you do towards her, coming from the heart. So that's point number one, is that Christ's love for His church is not primarily an emotion. It is primarily an action. And just, again, contrast it with the world, especially all the music that we hear, and especially music that children Teens, college students are inundated from, from the radio and have been for decades, starting with the Beatles, as they were the ones who came along and redefined love. That it wasn't action-oriented, that primarily love is to be thought of today as, as an emotion. And really, it's not love at all. Many times the way the world defines love is lust, isn't it? It's emotion, it is superficial, it fades, it doesn't last. I mean, think about it, that great theologian and philosopher Tina Turner. 
for example. Uh, she wrote several best number one songs in the 1980s, and she wrote about love all the time. One song was that was a, a bestseller was, What's love got to do, got to do with it, she asked. Isn't love just a second-hand emotion? That's, what she, that's how she defined love. It's just a second-hand, it's not just an emotion. It's a second-hand emotion. It's superfluous. So a total distortion of what biblical love is. Love is not an emotion primarily. Love is an action. So keep that in mind, husbands. Show your wife love through your actions. Number two, what else about Christ's love? Well, Christ's love was sacrificial towards this church. If you've got your Bible, look at John 15, 13. Love is an action and love is also sacrificial. Jesus defined love many ways. Uh, here's one that he said. And he was referring to himself in the work that he was going to do in John 15. As he's talking to his disciples just before his death, and the fact that he was going to be crucified willingly on their behalf and behalf of all sinners who would believe in him. John 15, 13, he said, Greater love has no one than this. This is the epitome of love. This is quintessential love. This is the greatest act of love that humanity has ever seen, is what he's saying. Greater love has no one than this. What he was about to do, what was that? That one lay down his life for his friends. That somebody would die on behalf of someone else. And that's what Jesus was about to do. He's about to die for his disciples. Willingly. He wasn't a helpless victim. He willingly went to the cross. He planned his crucifixion. Did you know that? He knew when it was going to happen. He knew how it was going to come about. And he knew that he planned the purpose of it. He died on the cross to be punished by God the Father. To absorb God's holy wrath that God would pour out on sinners. And Jesus got punished in place of sinners so they could be forgiven of God of all of their sins. That is the gospel. That is Christianity. That's why Jesus came. That's what he's talking about. The greatest act of love, that someone would die for another. Husbands, are you willing to die for your wife? Hopefully we would be, we would be able to say yes, right? And we probably wouldn't know that unless we were put in that situation. But at least we should be willing to say, I think I'm willing to die for my wife, or I want to be willing to die for my wife. And if we're willing to die for our wives, we should be willing to do lesser sacrifices on their behalf. So Christ's love was sacrificial. Our love for our wives also needs to be sacrificial. And when I say sacrificial, it usually means doing things that are hard to do, doing things you don't want to do. That's what sacrifice is, doing things that cost you, maybe some energy, maybe some time, maybe some sleep, maybe some money. Being sacrificial for your wife and your family, that's the calling of a godly Christian husband and father. Loving our wives sacrificially. Look at number three. Christ's love toward His church was selfless. So husbands, as we love our wives, we need to be selfless. I put 2 Corinthians 8, 9 there. There is, by the way, there is so much that can be said in the New Testament about the nature of Christ's love for His church Oh, there was just too much. So that's why I'm just picking a couple of key verses here to illustrate the truth. But how did Christ love His church? Christ loved His church selflessly. His love was selfless. 2 Corinthians 8 9 talks about that. For you know, Christian, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, His grace, His goodness that He bestowed upon us, that even though He was rich, He had everything. When He was in heaven with the Father before He came down, He had everything. He owned it all. He had glory with the Father. He ruled over the universe. Yet for our sakes, sinners, he became poor. How did Christ become poor? He came down, took on a human body, and lived among sinful humanity and deprived himself of all of his privileges that belonged to him. He became poor in order that 
through his poverty, we might become rich, spiritually speaking, forgiven of sin, an opportunity to know the true God of the universe in a personal way through Christ. That's what that verse is talking about. Jesus Christ loved sinners that he acted on his love and became selfless. He got his eyes off of his self, his glory, what he deserved as the creator. And put his eyes on sinners, sinful humanity. That is selflessness. It's the opposite of our society today, which is narcissistic. What does that mean? Looking at yourself all the time, being in love with yourself. That's what society wants us to do today. That's what commercials are all about, trying to brainwash us. To love self. Think about self. Care about self. You're number one. The Bible says just the opposite. Jesus acted just the opposite. Selflessly. Getting your eyes on other people. That's Philippians 2.3. Philippians 2.3, you know that one? Paul says to Christians, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility or lowliness of mind, as you think of yourself. Each of you should regard one another as more important than yourself. Boy, how much... you. Think about how much you could improve the state of your marriage if you just implemented the second part of this verse. Regard one another as more important than yourself. What if the wife just continually thought of her husband more important than herself and the husband continually thought of his wife more important than himself and what unbelievable harmony and joy and fulfillment you would have in your your marriage relationship. It would revolutionize your marriage as opposed to what typically goes on is we are inherently sinfully self-centered. Christ wasn't like that. He was selfless. So we need to love our wives selflessly as Christ did. Number four, how else did Christ love the church? Christ loved his church. Christ's love was serving. It was a giving love, a sacrificial love, a selfless love, and a serving love. Look at John 13. I'm not going to read the whole story, but it's just that story just before Jesus' death where he was with his 12 apostles at the Last Supper... And they sit down for dinner, and everybody's got dirty, smelly feet. And the custom was that the butler or the lowliest, most menial servant in the building at dinner was supposed to wash everybody else's feet. And the apostles, nobody washed each other's feet, and nobody washed Jesus' feet. So Jesus got up from dinner, and he washed all the disciples' feet. So he was performing the lowliest of menial deeds. Why did he do it? Well, he did it out of love because that's what he says in John 13. He tells the story. I went around. I washed all of your feet. Jesus didn't complain about it. He did it heartily. He did it graciously. He did it with a purpose. When he was done washing their feet, he said, I have given an example for you. In John 13, 14 and 15, he said, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. And it was this, what was this example? This was an example of love. Ser- love through serving. Again, the emphasis on action. But it's an action that serves. It is an action that is selfless. It is an action that is sacrificial. But it's an act of service. And that's what true love is. Husband, Christian husband, God calls us to serve our wives. How are you serving your wife? How am I serving my wife? We're not just leaders. We're not just masters of the home. We are leaders, but we're servant leaders because that's what Jesus was, like Jesus. Jesus himself said about himself, I, the Son of Man did not come into the world to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus was a servant leader first and foremost, and that's what set him apart from the leaders of the world. We're all grasping for power. So husband, you're a leader, but primarily first and foremost, you're a servant 
leader. And we need to do that towards our wife. How can you serve your wife? What does it mean to serve your wife, by the way? Acts of service. Deeds that benefit and bless the other person. Now, sometimes we might do deeds for them thinking, oh, she'll be blessed by that, when we actually didn't ask her, and that didn't bless her at all because she didn't want that done. So if you want to bless your wife, why don't you ask your wife, what can I do for you that's going to bless you and encourage you and help you? And she may give you several deeds, some of which you don't like, but the nature of love is you do those things anyway. You do it selflessly and sacrificially and as a servant. That's what we need to do. Which brings me to diapers. Uh, apparently there are dads uh, who don't believe in changing diapers and there are dads who boast of never changing a diaper in their life. And just so you know, that I can't even relate to that. I'm, I'm shocked when I hear that. Uh, I can't even believe that. Uh, and I was doing some reading recently, and Martin Luther actually talks about this. And he says, if you want to be a real man and a real husband, you will change those dirty diapers. He was an advocate of changing dirty diapers. Now, if it's between, now if you and your wife make some agreement and it's okay, and you decide, okay, you you change the diapers and I'll do other things, that's okay. If it's a mutual agreement between husband and wife, and the husband doesn't have to change diapers. I think that's fine. But I have actually heard Christian husbands argue theologically and spiritually talk about the biblical divisions of labor that they didn't have to change diapers because God said they didn't have to. Uh, seriously. Which I think is ridiculous and cowardly and I can't believe you schnookered your wife that she actually believed that. That's nowhere in the Bible. Well, I'm the man. I'm the leader. I don't have to change dirty diapers. Well, look what Jesus did. Uh, he did dirty, disgusting, smelly deeds for his thing, uh, disciples. What did he do? He washed their dirty, stinking, smelly feet. And he is God in the flesh. So we can't help our wives by changing diapers? That's just an option. You don't have to change diapers. That's between you and your wife and your home. Uh, but don't turn it into a spiritual thing. I mean, there's even a club. It's called D-A-D-D, -D, Dads Against Dirty Diapers. That's, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe you're a card-carrying member. I don't know. But I was doing the math, and I don't believe that uh, I am exempt from the Bible to change dirty diapers. As a matter of fact, I became an expert uh, at changing diapers, starting when I was 11 years old, babysitting for all of my older brothers and sisters and all of the uh, nephews and nieces that I had. And then I thought, I did the math with every... I had four children, and I figured about uh, three, a 1,000 diapers for each child. I've, I've changed over 5,000 diapers in my illustrious career, just so you know. But anyway... Serving your wife. Ask your wife, how can you serve her to show her love? Number five, how else did Christ love His church? Christ's love, his, Christ's love was forgiving. Christ's love was forgiving. A forgiving love. Very important. 1 Corinthians 15 says that Christ died for sin. You know what that means? Christ died for the forgiveness of sin. Christ died to attain forgiveness on our behalf. So Christ loved His disciples. He loved His own with a forgiving love. As a matter of fact, some theologians would say the greatest and most distinct characteristic of, or attribute about God that sets God apart from humanity is the fact that He is a forgiving God. A forgiving God, which is rooted in His love, His grace, and His mercy. Uh, I put 2 Corinthians 5.19 on there, so I do want to read that. And then I also want to highlight a passage that Tim Wong referred to, 1 Corinthians 13, in just a second. But listen to 2 Corinthians 5.19, one of dozens and dozens and dozens of verses and passages that talk about Christ's great forgiving love for sinners and His own. Talking about Christ uh, in 2 Corinthians, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself. We became His friend after being enemies through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely 
that God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or their sins against them. That's forgiveness of sin. That's how we became friends with God when we were originally his enemies. He was willing to forgive our sin. So if Christ, because of his love, is willing to forgive the sin of sinful people, husbands, we are obligated to love our wives in a regular, ongoing basis by forgiving them of their sins. That is, that's a definition of love is forgiving. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. By the way, in 1 Corinthians 13, that is an extended definition of love. It's a working definition of love. They're all action-oriented words. It's, it's love in action is what 1 Corinthians 13 is. And one of the components of true love, 1 Corinthians 13.5, love does not act unbecomingly. It, love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Here it is. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. These are accounting terms in the Greek. Accounting terminology, literally. Love does not keep a ledger of wrongs, sins suffered against you. So as a loving husband, you don't keep a list of dirty deeds that your wife ever committed against you as long as you've been married. So that at the next fight or argument, you whip out the list and remind her of all the times that she sinned against you. You don't do that. But we do that as humans, don't we? There's a natural inclination many times when we're slinging mud to do that very thing. And Paul says, don't do that. That is not true love. That's not godly love. It's not Christ-like love. So if you are going to have a spat or an argument or a fight or whatever you call it, and you're going to pull, put on the gloves, then you've got to make some rules. Rules for fighting as you blow by blow. We are not going to bring out past dirty deeds that supposedly are under the bridge, forgiven, forgotten, to be remembered no more. As we talk about the issues at hand, love does not keep a ledger of wrongs suffered. We need to be forgiving. And that's why, you know, God has said that every Christian has a supernatural capacity to forgive. Every Christian, recreated in the image of God, has the capacity to forgive. So that's why Paul says, if a Christian wife and a Christian husband, and they're truly Christians, no matter what they've done against one another, there is a supernatural capacity there to forgive each other, no matter what you've done to each other. That's why in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, if you're Christians, you shouldn't get divorced. And if you are Christians and you do get divorced, then you better not remarry anybody else. That's for Christians, he says. Now, there are occasions where divorce is allowed. But for Christians, Paul says, no. Why? Because I don't care what your spouse did. If you are truly a Christian and the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart, then you have supernatural ability to forgive and I don't care what the sin was. That is what the whole book of Hosea is about in the Old Testament. Where God marries Israel and Israel sins and sins and sins and commits adultery time and time again, yet God as the loving Father keeps forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. It's a living metaphor for us of God's forgiveness and forgiveness in marriage. And I would say that ultimately every marriage that ends in divorce uh, happened as a result of because of a lack of forgiveness at some point. Now, the Bible does have exceptions to where divorce is allowed, but ultimately unforgiveness creeps in. So uh, keep short accounts with your spouse, forgive them, pray for them, pray for the softening of your own heart so that Satan doesn't drive a wedge, create division, and overrides forgiveness in the Christian home that, that leads in uh, bitterness, separation, or God forbid, divorce between two Christians. Go on to number six. So we love our wives with a forgiving love. Number six, Christ's love was enduring. Christ's love persevered. In John, it says, after he'd been with his disciples for three and a half years, it said he loved them to the end. He didn't give up on those guys. 
those 12 uneducated, unprepared, undeserving fishermen and everything else that they did, they were sinful. They were not chosen by the goods of their own merits and Christ was patient with them and He loved them and He stuck with them to the very end, just before He left. That's an enduring love, a persevering love. He didn't give up on them. And even Judas, the betrayer, to the last minute, Christ was reaching out to him, calling him to repentance and in grace and in mercy, seeing him as a friend, giving the love of God towards him, even though he betrayed him. So Christ's love was enduring. So also our love for our wives needs to be enduring. It needs to be persevering. That's what, again, back to 1 Corinthians 13 and the definition of love. Verse 8, love never fails for the Christian. It's not supposed to. Love never fails. Uh, he goes on at the end of that chapter. Now abide these, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Love endures. Love never fails. Love perseveres. It's supposed to. Romans 8, 35-39. Let's look at it. That's how Christ loved the church. And keep in mind, I would ask you, uh, what did we as sinners do to earn Christ's love for us? What did we do that we deserved Christ's love? Well, we didn't do anything. We didn't deserve Christ's love. We were sinful, yet Christ loved us in spite of our sin, didn't He? So that's what this context is about. Romans 8, 35 to 39. Look at the enduring, persevering, ongoing, never-ending love of Christ for the church, sinful people. That's It's the whole last part of this section. I'm just going to start at verse 35. Who, Christian, shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody. Is Christ going to divorce you? Christ save you? Then is He going to boot you out? No. If you've been saved, can you lose your salvation? No. Christ is not going to divorce you. He saved you. And He saved you not on the basis of what you or I did that was good. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Shall tribulation? No. Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Peril? Sword? No. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ as He saved us. He continues, verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things, principalities, demons themselves that might invade your marriage, creating a separation between husband and wife. You shouldn't let it happen. Not if you have the love of Christ in your marriage. Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you know what? You can go back, reread those verses, write them down, and apply it to your marriage. Talking about husband and wife. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, the circumstances of life, the trials of life, the idiosyncrasies and sins of my spouse, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate me from my Christian spouse. Same thing. It's legitimate. The love of Christ. So our love for one another needs to be enduring, persevering. We say in our vows, till death do we part. Christian is supposed to uphold that vow till death. Jesus himself said, what God has brought together in marriage, let no man separate. Let no man divorce. In good times and in bad. And God will see you through. Which leads us to number seven. Christ's love for his church was volitional. Oh, that's a big word. What does that mean? Well, it just simply means it was, it was a choice. Christ made a choice when he chose to love people. Love, that's a, that's a title of a book, by the way. Love is a choice. It's an act of the will. It's not an emotion, which is so common in the world today. 
Turn on the television, see it on cover of magazines. This movie star getting divorced for the fifth time and marrying this person. Why? It's not based on true love. It's all emotion. It's all the outside. It's all a facade. Love is a choice. It's an act of the will. It's a decision you make. Jesus himself said in John 15, 16, I chose you. Chose you. Not because you were good or you're going to offer me anything good. I chose you. I chose to put my love on you. Husbands, we need to do the same thing regarding our wife. We need to choose to love our wife the way God has required us to do. And I say this in, bib in biblical counseling with married couples who are having major problems. And inevitably, I will get to the husband who is mad at his wife, wants to walk out on his wife, wants to divorce his wife, can't stand his wife at times when that happens. And I remind him, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Then the Bible says simply, husband, love your wife. That is a command. You need to choose to do it. It is an act of the will. Well, I don't feel like it. It has nothing to do with your emotions. You know, if, if we just submit to God's commands, His simple commands, and choose to obey and even ask Him to help us to obey, because many times we, we can't do it on our own. It's like the guy who prayed, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. God, I need, a, I need Your Holy Spirit to help me in this. Yeah, sometimes we've got to do that. God, help me to choose to make the right, right decision. Lord, help me to do the thing that I know is the right thing. It is your command. I don't feel like it. I don't want to do it. And you know what? God will answer that prayer if you're a Christian. He will override your emotions. When you act in obedience to Him, and many times, actually, if not all the time, when you act in obedience to God with the right attitude and you comply with His basic command and you do it with an act of the will, in time, the emotions will follow. It's an amazing thing. And that, but that's how God designed emotions. Emotions are supposed to follow, not go ahead. You don't do things based on emotion. You do things based on truth, an act of the will. So Christ's love for these sinful people that He called the church, that He redeemed for Himself, that He married, His love was an act of the will. It was volitional. And husbands, we need to love our wives the same way. Husband, love your wife. I have the same obligation. I need to love my wife simply because God commanded it to be so. And then finally, number eight. Well, how can this be? Um, this is a, an impossible calling and standard. It is. That's why we have number eight. Christ's love was supernatural. Christ's love was supernatural. When Paul says, husbands, love your wives, this is not an injunction or a command that can be given to just anybody. This could, command could not be given to somebody who is not a born-again Christian. This command can only be given and fulfilled by somebody who has been regenerate, born again, knows Jesus Christ personally, because when you become a Christian, God gives you the Holy Spirit to live inside of you, and the Holy Spirit is the one who produces supernatural love in the life of a Christian. Romans 5 says, because you're Christians, the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart. The love of God has been poured out in your heart. It's the love of God. It's a supernatural love. When we're born into this world, all we have access to is human love. That comes by virtue of the fact that we were made in God's image. It is not a supernatural love. So if you know people that are married, maybe you have relatives that are married, and they are not Christians, and they are married, and they like each other, they do like each other. There's a natural human affection there. But it's at a natural level. It's a human level. Here we're talking about supernatural love that only comes from God, and it only comes from God based on knowing Jesus Christ personally. If you do not know Jesus Christ personally, you do not have access to this supernatural love. That's 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Let's look at it. 1 John 4, the supernatural love. Beloved, and he's talking to Christians. Christians. Let us love one another, Christians, for love is from God. 
You have the capacity to love in a true way for the first time after you became a Christian. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God personally. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So if you don't love, if you don't have love in your heart, you're, you're not born again, you don't know God personally, you're not a Christian. And the converse is also true. If you're not a Christian, you don't have the ability to love supernaturally. You only have the ability, at most, to love on a human level. Verse 9, By this the love of God was made manifest in us that are Christians, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or covering for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So Christian husbands, you are called to love your wife with a supernatural love. You actually don't even have to ask for it. It's already been shed abroad in your heart. All we have to do is ask God to help us appropriate it, manifest it in our life through the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our heart. And that's why Christian husbands don't have an excuse at all. Saying, well, I can't love her. Or she did this big sin. Or I don't feel like it. No, we can if we're Christians. The resources are there from God Himself. Supernatural, Holy Spirit-empowered love that resides literally within the believer. That is the kind of love that we are supposed to love our wives with. And God has given us that great supernatural resource to love. And this might spawn some questions in the minds of people saying, well, I've got some in-laws that they're not Christians, but they truly love one another. Well, they do on a human level but not with supernatural love that God has put in the heart of every true Christians. And that's why I can keep going back to this thing about if you're a Christian couple and you're a Christian wife and you're a Christian husband, I don't care how bad it gets, divorce should not be an option because forgiveness is possible by virtue of the fact that because you're a Christian, God has given you at your disposal supernatural, eternal, persevering, forgiving love for the Christian. And any marriage can be healed between two Christians. Anyone. That's God's promise. I've seen it happen. And then my last question to you, Christian, would be, you know, if you're so unforgiving and angry and bitter towards your spouse, yet you call yourself a Christian and you think your spouse is a Christian and you're unwilling to forgive, but God, how many of your sins has God forgiven of you? Answer, all of them, past, present, and future. So if God has forgiven you of all of your sins, in return, shouldn't we forgive our spouse all of their sins as well? Well, the answer is yes, if you're a Christian, because that's what God requires. So there it is. Now, for the next two weeks, I want to look at a couple of more components or requirements or obligations that God is calling uh, husbands to do towards their wives in terms of how they manifest their love. And that's going to be for the next two weeks, just so you know. But today, husband, love your wife. What a challenge, starting today, starting uh, before lunch, after lunch, or at dinner. With action, sacrificially, selflessly, in a serving manner, with forgiveness, in an enduring way, as an act of the will, because of the supernatural capacity to love that God has given us. And may that be true more and more in our growing marriages. Let's go ahead and pray and thank God for our time together. Father, thank you for today. I thank you for the church. Thank you for the saints. I thank you for Grace Bible Fellowship. Thank you for every person that you bring our way, and especially today, Lord. Thank you that we can worship you, learn from you, study your word together. God, remind us of what Jesus said. Know the truth, and the truth shall set us free. 
Help us meditate on these truths, especially those of us that are married and those of us that are husbands. God, that we can live the way Jesus has commanded us to do. God, we need your help, your grace, and your mercy to do it. Uh, but we ask that you'd work in that manner in our life so that we might please you in all things. And we commit it to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.